Um, oh, hang on. Is there a live letter of comment? I already did that one. Cool. Is a, is a live letter of comment just a Spaniard shouting at you from the other room? In this case, texting. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to the very 97th episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom, which is coming to you on the 23rd of November 2023. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And today we have heard from some people about some things. Who did we hear from, John? We heard from Lee Edmonds who wrote about historical sources vis-a-vis NASFIC. Lee tells us that we can blame the NASFIC on Australia. So there we have it. And then Lee did some more research and said, no, you can't. It's more complicated than that. And basically goes into a lot of detail. So when the Whisper Constitution was first amended, so it used to be that the Whisper Constitution was split into, split the u.s into zones so the Worldcon couldn't be held in the same zone of the u.s twice in a row basically and this has been superseded by something in the whispers constitution that means you can't hold it within i think it's 500 miles of the city at which site selection is conducted um which is you know an attempt to prevent it just staying in the same place every other year and goes into a lot of um, detail about how the NASFIC was added as part of a lot of stuff to do with overhauling that. So the NASFIC came into being when Wisfus moved away from that mechanism to force the convention to travel. And Hispania told me, and I did not know this, that Westercon started originally because the people who went to the first Westercon were so annoyed that the Worldcon was always on the East Coast. And so they started Westercon to be on the West Coast. I might just paste this somewhere and link to it from the um, show notes because it's very interesting. Yes, thank thank you for your research, Lee. I think I think you do deserve a quiet lie down after trying to work out what was going on with the Nasfic and Wilcon constitutions in 1970. This is what Lee lives for these days: research into incredibly abstruse and complicated things. I have one of his books for a fan funds auction, which is all about the history of a company that made bacon. I realise I'm at risk here of a deluge of emails, but if anyone else wants to research obscure fanish history topics and then email us about them, I like reading them. I can't guarantee we'll read them all out depending on how long your letters get. No, yes, thank you very much. Uh, again, that was very good. Um, we also heard from Espana, who asked on Mastodon whether there would be a photograph of us in purple Octhorpe shirts in a purple Premier Inn room at Glasgow. There might be, except I don't have an Octhorpe shirt, but I have a purple Glasgow shirt. No, it would have to be an Octhorpe shirt. I may skip out of the Premier Inn at the point where Glasgow launches its actual room rates, right? Uh, you might. I might, but I might not. Depends on the room rates. My premier in booking is cancellable, and the in, the intention was always to slip into a Glasgow room if those looked like they were better. So, in the perfectly public program item at Novacon, where Esther updated everyone on Glasgow things, um, she said quite a lot of rooms at between 150 and 180 pounds a night, but not all, obviously, quite a lot of more than that as well. 
like the lower end of that is still starting above what I'm paying for Premier Inn if I'm in it. So yeah, and also, but also it'll include breakfast. So maybe include breakfast. We'll see. Anyway, um, all of this is wild speculation at the moment. January is the date we have for room bookings. I mean, the other problem is that fans have wildly bid up the Premier Inn room pricing by all booking a year out, and then if we all cancel it, the price might come back down. We also heard from Christopher J. Garcia. He said, Taff was the first time fandom changed his life, and that's only happened twice. I think Chris is trying to get us to ask what the other time was, but I refuse, Chris. I refuse. Chris, what was the other time? Do write in and tell us. You pander to him. You spoil him. Yeah, well, it's 2023, science fiction year of the panda, isn't it? Laurie Anderson on Facebook appreciated your hangers jokes. Laurie Anderson on Facebook is a person of impeccable taste and judgment who went into detail on street addresses. Do you want to tackle that, Liz? Yes, in a minute when I get it up. Yes, Laurie, yes, said me again. Maybe I should have sent an email. We accept emails, Facebook comments, Mastodon messages, Twitter messages. We might just occasionally miss them and not realise for six months. Laurie would interpret postal address to mean mailing address as distinct from residential or street address, which I think is just confusing things more because now we've got mailing address, residential address, street address and postal address, and they could all reasonably be interpreted different ways by a different set of people in a different country. She does say that she hopes postal address does not end up being defined as residential address because it will, you know, endanger those people who use a PO box for safety reasons, which is a good answer. My brain is working at like 50% capacity, so I cannot say residential address. So yeah, the the agenda for the um, business meeting, I think the one that won was the one that dictated postal address, um, but it, it says postal specifically. So I would agree that Laurie's interpretation was probably correct but like i don't know it's annoyingly vague she also says that we should take a shot every time someone says parochial and then go directly to hospital that was it that was all the letters of comment Ooh, yeah if you have any comments please write in we want to do chengdu news chengdu's how have we got this far without that joke I think Liz wanted to discuss this, so would you care to introduce it, Liz? Yeah, now I have to be coherent for 30 seconds. Okay, so Chengdu further follow-up. It seems like more con reports are coming out, um, especially ones from the Chinese attendees, who I admit I've been reading these reports only through Google Translate, so I'm going to get the gist but not specific nuances. But it, it does seem like there's been a bit of a divide in the experience between maybe the foreign fans who were looked after very well and the Chinese fans who do not seem to have got such a good deal out of it. Um, And we'll link to one of these reports in the show notes, but there seem to be a lot of things with foreign attendees generally being in the closest hotel, the hotel price for that hotel being extremely high. Anyone who voted at Discon would have already had a full attending membership, whereas it seems it was quite hard to buy memberships and some of them sold out. Issues with people volunteering and then not actually hearing anything back about their volunteering offers, although that is not going to be exclusively a Chengdu problem. That is a problem of all conventions, I think, especially Worldcons, things slip through the cracks. But it, just, it does seem like 
the attendees came back and kind of said, wow, this was great. I think a lot of them had like a handler to help them get around, to help them with uh, issues with translation and things like that. And they were in a close by hotel and it was kind of easy to deal with. And then some of the NT attendees not having such a good time. So I think, I think it's going to be interesting to see like maybe in, you know, a year from now or six months from now, when the everything is settled down, how people feel it went and whether Chinese fandom thinks this was good, we want to do it again. Or do they think this was not good, we want to do it again and do it better? Or do they think, no, that was it. We've had a Wilk on now, we're done. Mm. Yeah, no, it will be interesting. I think when we listen to some of the things that Chinese fans are saying about it, they are giving the impression that it, it kind of all got taken away from them. So something that they felt started as a fan-generated idea became something very, very different in the end. Certainly a lot more money was spent on the Worldcon than could be accounted for by the admission fees. Weirdly, I keep getting invited to physics conferences in Chengdu at the moment. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Same, same basic deal, is it? Um, somebody's paying for all of the costs of the physics conference and presumably maybe Chengdu University just has a lot of money. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's completely above board, etc. It is interesting to see the reports coming out. I'm glad for everyone who had a good time, had a good time. And I hope it was a net good for Chinese fandom, but we shall see. I want to say I like living in the future because I like the fact that I can understand nearly all of of a Chinese report on the Worldcon by putting it into Google Translate. And even even a couple of years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. Things are moving very fast in in those automatic translation and automatic transcribing spaces. Yes, getting all of this stuff translated would be non-trivial. Well, it's so good that when there's a word that's been translated wrong, it was like, um, I think the Astounding Award got translated by Google as the Surprise Award. And the translation is so good that when something like that happens, I realise I've forgotten I'm reading it in Google Translate. (laughs) Until until I notice something that's that's obviously wrong, and I go, oh right, remember the whole thing is in Google Translate, so you're lose, you are losing nuance. I mean, I think that's just a very. I think I think there's a lot more you're losing, a lot more nuance. I think that's just a very obvious thing that pops up there because you you're gonna miss things like there's there's incredibly subtle things in language that we're not getting, and especially here where they're you know criticizing a lot of the stuff that happens. I don't know how like harsh some of this criticism is i don't know how much to i should think this is in an angry tone or a fairly resigned to it tone like there's all that sort of thing that i would be picking up if i was reading this in english that i'm i'm missing so factual stuff is good but i can't really get too much about how the author feels it seems like the author feels pretty angry about it but i don't know if that's just because that's how it's been translated like words like irresponsible and things like that I think there's a lot of like potential ways to translate that. We might be getting off topic into translation, but I think there's that. And also I, when I read things by different authors that have been put through Google Translate, I'm not sure I could tell you major differences between the writing styles, which I could if they were languages I could read. There's two things. I've got two things and then we'll move on to more on topic things, which is firstly, obviously, it's very difficult to compare a Google Translate translation into English versus reading it in the original language if you don't speak the original language, right? So, like, I speak a little bit of Spanish, so I have, like, a vague idea of this, but, like, not anywhere near enough to comment qualifiedly. But second comment, obviously, this is why God gave us emoji, 
because if you use emoji they won't need translating and you'll understand exactly how angry someone is <laughs> so just use normal nice basic words and have loads of emoji that is the future of language people you heard it here first winky face <laughs> shit-eating grin emoji <laughs> can that be the episode title perhaps not and obviously there's still no stats one day there will be stats 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 we've been told we'll have stats by the latest day in which Chengdu is not in violation of its um, responsibilities under the Worcester's constitution did I see and Liz might one of you might have been on the discord I'm sure someone posted a link which is like has it been 90 days since Chengdu yet or something like that (laughs) it might have been a dream maybe for Christmas Santa will bring us stats (laughs) <laughs> i'm also going to point out like if if chengdu missed the deadline for publishing the hugo stats what's going to happen nothing would happen exactly on the topic of chengdu uh the wasp's minutes aren't out yet but there have been reports and there are videos of what went on um so we're going to discuss that all a little bit here and to do that we'll need no, 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 to the Batmobile, Lizbat. What they've now published on the Wisfer site is the updated constitution and standing rules, which basically means it includes everything that was ratified or was a rule change that didn't need ratification that took effect in 2023. So you can now look at the new constitution if you want, because they highlight the changes. So the changes are pretty minimal um, in the actual constitution, which is to include best game and interactive work and a definition of game or interactive work, and also to remove the uh, rule by which no award is given if it's less than 25% of the total number of award ballots in any category. So those, I think we agree, are both great changes. Good to see them. Hooray. But they also amended the standing rules, which are kind of the rules by which the governance of the business meeting takes place. And there's now an extra one at the end. Rule 7.9, proxy and remote voting. Only WISFUS members physically present at the business meeting shall be recognised for purposes of debate or may move, second or vote on motions on the floor of the meeting. Proxy voting is not permitted. So, um... This was not in the agenda that was on the website. And when I went and looked at the recording of the preliminary meeting, and I've got to thank Kevin Stanley for putting up and making the recordings of the business meetings at Chengdu so we can even go and look at this. It basically comes up very, very late that there was a super late change to standing rules to put this in. It was felt that it kind of formalises the current practice of business meetings not to allow any proxy or remote voting. And so it kind of was thought to be just kind of an like an explanatory change to the rules and so like it could, could pass in one year yes by six votes to four yeah so i think so basically this was done this was brought by dave mccarty and um waved through by the 10 people in the room because as it stood this was not ruled against or for uh in the standing rules and so and so it does seem a little bit crappy that Dave did this. I think it acts to preserve the status quo and preserve the privilege of the people in the room without much thought for what might be good for the community going forward. And yeah, I just I was a little bit sad to see this happen. 
uh, and I don't think it reflects well on any of the people who enabled it, is my basic take. So Kevin Stanley is posted to say, oh, no, it's not like that. Um, Where something's not covered in your standing rules, you kind of go to the generic Robert's Rules of Order to see what you should be doing. And the generic Robert's Rules of Order say no proxies or remote participation unless you already have provision for it in your organising documents. Um, so therefore, it is a, his argument is that this is a clarification because we didn't have anything and so, so it actually was automatically part of the rules because we were using Robert's Rules of Order. Let me go back to saying Robert's Rules of Order is completely unfit for purpose for parliamentary work in the 21st century or even the 20th. It was getting out of hand by the end of the 19th. We should have a better parliamentary system. I understand that that might never happen because it's quite a complicated thing to sort out, but still. But that's the that's the issue is that apparently Robert's Rules already has this provision in it. So by, by not having the thing in a standing order, it doesn't mean, oh, you can do online participation if you like. It means, oh, you should go back and use whatever Robert's Rules says generically. I, I do think this was pretty underhand anyway. If you were going to do this, um, you would probably want to, to have let people know in advance you, could, you were going to do it. Um, I feel like six votes to four. The quorum for um, for the Worcester's business meeting is more than that, though, of course, presumably some people abstained in this vote. Yeah, I mean, what I'd say is if it's already... So if this is already just making explicit something that we think was covered already by the rules, um, then I don't know why there was a need to put it in as like a super last minute thing that wasn't on the public agenda. Because if it's not on the public agenda and people don't know it's happening, then they might think, well, actually, I don't need to go to the preliminary business meeting, which is mostly about, you know, setting times for debate and, you know, uh, doing like objections to things that are never good, that, that we don't want to debate. You might skip that and think you'll turn up on the next morning for the main business meeting and you've actually maybe missed an important bit of business. Well, and the, the answer to your question of why would you do it like this, Liz, is duplicity. Simply put, I think, like, you know, I don't want to be too mean, but yeah, it just leaves a bad taste in the mouth. Or propose a rule change. Yeah, at Glasgow, why not? You want to spend all of Glasgow in the business meeting, right, John? Do we want to talk about independent film? Um, yeah, I want to talk about independent film because the reason that I'm not going to be introducing a new amendment on um, remote participation, though obviously I'll enthusiastically support anybody who does, is that I'm going to be busy, busy trying to kill a pair of new Hugos for long-form and short-form independent film, which have been um, half-ratified with zero attention or care directly due to the fact that the Worldcon does not have online participation of voting because if it did do it wouldn't have passed because the the usual suspects would have stopped it from doing so are you sure because if you i'm just saying if you include remote participation not only would maybe the usual suspects of remote participated in but maybe loads and loads of other people maybe loads of chinese people in the program so last episode, we speculated that maybe some of these amendments and whatnots that were made and need ratification at Glasgow had been made by Chinese fans who were just like, you know, I get to be in the meeting and I get to propose a thing for a thing I like and it gets it in the conversation and hurrah. And I was like, oh, that is actually a fair thing to say and it's a good thing and we don't want to just be three Westerners uh, opposing, you know, 
what Chinese fans want from a nominally world organisation. But it turns out the person who is trying to get these independent film Hugos through is Louis Savvy, who runs Sci-Fi London, which the astute listener uh, may notice London is not in China. And so this does not look like it is a grassroots, enthusiastic Chinese thing. It looks rather more like it's someone with an interest in independent film trying to force through a Hugo on independent film without really engaging with the community first, which suddenly recasts it from me thinking, oh, well, it's kind of adorable, but I don't think it will work. And I go from that basic opinion to this is what the sad puppies were trying to do, and I oppose it extremely vehemently. So it has completely recontextualized my thoughts on this with one screenshot of a Facebook post, which is really interesting. What do we think? Previously on this podcast, we may have suggested that Louis Savvy was a generally good egg and that we were big fans of the London Sci-Fi Film Festival. Um, we just want you to know that we have now changed our minds and he's a confirmed rotter. No, we have not changed our minds. You have changed your minds. So yeah, no attributing opinions to me that I do not personally have. I don't think he's a rotter. But I am, um, I'm deeply uncomfortable with it. So all I would say is we've seen a post from Louis Savvy on the Glasgow Facebook group saying he was hoping to come to, you know, Glasgow and help push through the ratification of these things. What we don't know, and I think we're speculating quite a lot, is whether the people who proposed it in China were actually supportive of independent film in China or whether they were just people he had found to kind of propose it. We don't know to what extent there is a grassroots movement or rather not a grassroots movement but maybe just a big movement of independent film in china which you know possibly louis is well aware of because he's really deeply into independent film and also i think it's a bit unfair to say he's coming in from outside i mean he ran the film program in 2014 he's not a complete outsider to the community okay yeah no that's fair and you know they had the clark awards at sci-fi london for a long time as well yeah i don't i don't think he's a rotter i think this, these are very badly founded Hugos and this is a real problem if they were to pass next year. I think there is a differentiation I guess it depends which community you're talking about right because I'm very much specifically talking about the Worldcon community. I had not appreciated he was involved with program for Luncon but I don't know that I think having the Clarks at Sci-Fi London means you're part of the Worldcon community because I think the Clarks and Worldcon are separate things that are interlinked and in my defense he does say in the post he proposed the Hugo Awards. So I am assuming, therefore, that he proposed them. But if he did not, then that is an error and I regret it. But he must have had some people helping out to get them passed. So, But this is one of the reasons we need the minutes. I suppose we may need to listen to more video as well that we haven't listened to yet. Yeah, but it just it slightly frustrates me because the other thing is that if this was something that he had felt... There's an optic to this, which is choosing to do it in China when you know that there won't be many people at the business meeting and you know the next meeting will be in your home territory, does not feel like it wasn't a considered decision to make it more likely that this would get through. And maybe that is me putting a lot of negative like assumptions on him, but it, the optics of it are not great. I think that's definitely how it can be observed, whether it was the intention or not. Because if you know the business meeting, you know the Chinese, the Chengdu one was going to be sparsely attended and probably easier to pass stuff at. And that's going to be the impression people get, even if you didn't actually know that. You just knew that there were independent film fans in China who might be amenable to helping with this proposal. Okay, having said that clearly 
Safi is a rotter. How about taking that the other way around and going, oh, no, if I want to do this, I want to have the ratification discussions at, at Glasgow because it's in the UK and Chengdu just happens to be the year before. Well, I don't know. Mm. I still think it's weird that you'd think about it in terms of the ratification discussion. I think that's what's the red flag for me. Because, yeah, look at best game ratification. The the substantial discussion happened the year it passed, not the year it got ratified, although because the ratification was in Chengdu. But, you know, normally we're seeing substantial discussion happen before something gets on there, not things not being ratified. So it will be a bit of a difference to the usual procedure. Yeah, it will. It would be terrible if these passed. It will be interesting to see if at Glasgow, you know, a few people turn up who quite like this Hugo and it's resoundingly defeated. That makes it look a lot less problematic than it does if sort of 50 independent filmmakers turn up and all enthusiastically vote to ratify. Um, So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I'm going to reserve judgment, but it definitely feels a bit hinky in a way that I don't enjoy. And maybe I'm just like on edge after the last kind of stuff that's happened in the last 10 years with the Hugos. I don't know. I'm a bit wary of people trying to change things through fiat rather than through community involvement. Well, hopefully then there'll be a year of discussion about it and the best outcome will be if then that comes up with a list of really good independent short films to watch. I mean, I'm also just aware that we're basically never going to get rid of any Hugo category ever. So I don't want to just keep adding them at the rate of two or three a year. The problem is that the Hugo categories until now have always subdivided Hugo content. So that was the reason we had that huge argument about the young adult Hugo that became Lodestar. So these don't. These are extra Hugos for things that are already winning Hugos. Hmm. I mean, Tamsin Muir could have won two Hugos this year. I know they're not for exactly the same thing, but one would be a subset of the other. Okay, so don't make me don't make me hate best series again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm certainly up for having best novel have a provision that is best novel open brackets not part of a longer series close brackets. And if you ever write a sequel, we come and take your Hugo away. <laughs> Break into their house. I presume that this is also a problem with novel because. So although Flowers for Algernon didn't win the Hugo in its novel form, it did win the Nebula after having won the Hugo for its short story form. And so it is already true that, like, if you write a short story, like, um, Hugo Girl just did their episode about the Danny novella, which is basically just the Danny chapters of Game of Thrones published as a novella before it came out. And I presume that would have been eligible as a novella and then Game of Thrones would have been eligible in novel. So, like... I think part of the problem here is that it's very difficult in the because obviously short story through to series all are basically re- rewarding text storytelling like you know you can rework those things in various ways that might mean you end up being eligible more than once for similar work. Yeah, but but the independent films are for the same thing. They are eligible in both categories. You you wouldn't want everything everywhere to win two hugos in the same year for exactly the same i mean maybe you would because lots of people liked it but like i wouldn't like it too but i mean the everything everywhere problem expresses the main problem here which is what counts as independent what's an independent film what's an independent brewery um 
what will happen with this, even if you had it, almost certainly is that for for the long form, certainly you'd get the most widely, it would be an award for most widely distributed independent film, which is not necessarily what you want. Yeah, I don't know, because we don't have the minutes yet, I don't know what the definition of independent is. I think it was probably on the agenda, but I don't know whether it got changed in the room. But I think in general, I don't love it when an attempt to add a Hugo is coming from someone who is directly involved with enterprises that make money from the thing they are trying to get a Hugo in for. And so I would actually mind much less again if it was someone who just really liked independent film and didn't run an independent film festival because I do understand that that probably means you have a lot of affection for the form, but it also means it gets hard for me to disentangle the less noble incentives from the more noble ones, if that makes sense. But that might be unfair. I don't know. It reminds me of the um, push for a Hugo for Best Audiobook, which was suggested by a paid-up member of the audiobook publishing industry. Yeah. Sorry, I've got very distracted trying to work out if Anne McCaffrey managed to win a Hugo for the same thing twice. Oh, good knowledge. No, is the answer. Listeners, if you can think of any instance where someone did win a Hugo for the same thing twice, write in. Martha Wells. I mean, Lois McMaster bujold if we're going that route, but that's not quite what I meant. Okay, sorry, no, I I finished checking and she didn't. It's because she won for a novella, which became the first half of a novel, but that novel was not nominated for Hugo. The sequel to it was nominated for Hugo. So I think we're good. That was a nice derail, wasn't it? Sorry. Lovely. I still don't think that winning a Hugo for Best Series is the same as winning a Hugo for something that's component part of Best Series, but, but I see the argument. But that isn't that exactly the same novel uh, argument as if you win a Hugo for a novella that then becomes part of your Hugo-winning novel. I don't, also don't really have a problem with that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the, the argument I'm in fact making is, I think it's not like Flowers from Algonon wouldn't have deserved the Hugo for its novel form if people thought it was the best novel that year, despite the fact it had previously won for short story. It is, is sort of exactly my point, really. Glasgow have a press release. They have announced their online attendance plan. Their online convention experience is going to do lots of things, which are great. It is going to be based on hop-in events from Ring Central for video streaming and Discord for text interaction and community forums. And all adult and young adult attending members will automatically receive full access. Or you can buy a online attending ticket for £35, which will give you full access to the online experience. I mean, or you could buy an online attending membership, which also includes Wuspus membership for £75. Um, so, yes. Yeah, and there's a um, discount for existing Wuspus members to update to online. And Hopin Events, um, their streaming platform is StreamYard, which people who came to Punctuation oh. remember. Oh, yeah, it yes. works. I like it. So, so with so, with trailblazers, I mean, they're much bigger listeners. now, and they do much more things. But, but that's Streamyard at its heart. That is fair. Yeah, I think um, Streamyard seemed quite straightforward for participants to get the hang of. I've got to say, and you can have mm. like someone in there secretly, you know, putting the spotlight on different people and muting things and turning things on and off and putting a presentation up, which is means you don't end up with the kind of ten minutes of, oh, can you see my screen? 
Oh, I'll just turn it on and off the screen sharing. Oh, can you see my screen? Oh, it's in presenter view. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but Liz, stop talking about the beginning of this podcast and let's get back to discussing Glasgow. Yes, I misread the press release, but yes, you can, if you're an existing WUSFUS member, you can upgrade to an online attending member for for cheap. So that's good. Um, and it will be lovely. Yeah, no, I think it should be lovely. I have huge faith in the people who are doing tech for Worldcon, and I think they're going to do a good job. Um, I'm glad that they're using a platform I have some familiarity with. And I'm also glad that they decided that Discord was the way to do text chat and that that was a useful thing to do because I think Discords have been great for conventions over the last couple of years and I want them for all conventions, really. Yeah, don't make me learn another platform now. I'm too old. I'm stuck now. I'm never going to progress past Discord. But they are they are suggesting um, that they're going to do some virtual events in the new year um, so that we can all get re- used to the platform well in advance of the convention. So that sounds exciting too. So hopefully by the time the convention comes around, we'll all have used the virtual stuff and have found out how it works. Yes. And as a result of that, um, the last Glasgow Presents events, we mentioned Glasgow Presents a few weeks ago, was last night. Alison hosted it, listeners. I hosted it, yes. I was moderating Peter S. Beagle and Catherine M. Valente in conversation. Ooh. I don't think your name was on the poster. I don't think your name was on the poster in big letters next to Peter S. Beagle. <laughs> for some reason, for some reason, my name was not on the poster. Uh, but but I was the person managing the questions and um, lots of people came along to the Eventbrite and lots of people watched on YouTube and it was just great. Thank you everyone who came and it's interesting if you're interested in Beagle and, I, you know, you probably have to be a person of a certain age. There are a lot of people of a certain age in the audience, I'd say who were very inspired by Beagle's work when they were kids. But also, Kat Valenti writes middle grade, I think. So, so she's going to have a very different following. And, th- and the thing starts with a meet-cute about how Kat Valenti met Peter Beagle. So, so, which is well worth listening to. Do we want to do... Novacon. I've got a tiny, t- I just want to say, I went to Novacon, neither of you came to Novacon. Somebody bounded up to me and said, when is Octothorpe live with Stunt John and Stunt Liz? And I was like, oh, you're drinking with it right now. <laughs> you should have you should have a pint glass that says Octothorpe live on it. So whenever you're at a convention on your own, you can just be, you can have Octothorpe live. <clears throat> no, I was not in Novacon. I was somewhere else. Where was I? Oh, I was cottaging. We had quite nice weather, so Buxton was absolutely lovely. And there's a new, there's a new beer bar, so so it really is just like we get up in the morning, we walk out of the hotel into the street full of lovely beer shops and drink beer all day, and then come back and then repeat, and then there's the beer tasting, and there was also the Glasgow gin tasting, which I managed to get to a short amount of, but there was a phenomenal amount of gin at that, so. I've got to say, I was about 50 miles from Novacon and I didn't go. Oh, well, you, you guys were missing out. It was great. I nearly did, but then I had to go home. That is, that is reasonable. Guest of honour for Novacon 53 has been announced and it is Alan Stroud, the chair of the BSFA. But I'm glad you had fun, Alison. I'm glad you drank lots of gin. I drank lots of beer and lots of gin. I, I had a lovely time, actually. It was good. Sorry, I didn't mean to leave out the beer and I regret the error. And lots of gossip. Way. Lots of lots of fanish gossip.
Okay, so now it's time for picks. So, shall I do mine then? Goliath. Yes. Yes. So, um, I think I've actually mentioned this on the pod before. My pick this week is Goliath by um, Toki Onyabuchi, um, which is another of these books that people say, oh, this is one of the best books of 2022, but unaccountably it did not appear on um, award shortlists. Um, and so what is it? It is a book of the near future. We are in an America where um, most of the rich people have fucked off to space and we have um, a bunch of people who are left behind on Earth. In, in We learn a lot about the world, but we learn a lot about the world kind of in the sidelines of the book for reasons that I'm about to explain. Um, but the people that we are mostly spending time with are kind of Scrimp, scraping a living together from what remains on earth after most people have gone. Um, so those people form the bulk of the protagonists of the book. And then we also see two gentrifiers. Um, the book is called De- Goliath and the, the gentrifiers are called David and Jonathan. And they are they have decided to return to earth and make a life there because they think that it will be um, more real, better, or Jonathan thinks it will be more real and better to to live in the in the actual world with air and nature and things of that kind, and also obviously a lot of pollution and a whole lot of crime and other things going wrong. Um, this book is difficult, and the reason that it's difficult is that it is told in a series of fragmentary scenes from lots of different points of view. They are differently spaced in time. Um, you are given almost no clues as to who is um, narrating each section or why. I mean, you work it out. Um, and so in general, it is a book that is much harder work than most of the books that I have read recently that are SF and fantasy. I think probably it's a decade since I read a science fiction book that was as hard to read as this. And so I, I kind of stopped reading it the first time and put it down. And it was only because a couple of the people who think that it definitely should be on the, should have been on the shortlists um, told me to pick it up again, that I picked it up again and finished it. And I really, really enjoyed it. But like I think a lot of novels that are not science fiction novels, but very few science fiction novels, you have to work out what's going on from things that you're not necessarily told. You know, you're expected to do some of the work to come to this and understand what's what is the story that you're being told, what has actually happened here. Um I guess some people Lots of so therefore lots of people hate it. Goodreads has got about a third, I think, people who were minded to say that they did not finish this book um, of the of the reviews on there. Um, it's very rewarding if you if you keep at it. I don't think the individual parts fitter are very hard, but certainly piecing together what's going on was plenty hard enough for me. Um, I, I thought what was going on was very good um, because I think the story it's telling is quite an important one. Um, I couldn't help comparing it with the previous novel I'd read, which was Babel, which I really didn't like very much because Babel um, not only tells you everything it wants you to know, but it tells you everything it wants you to know two or three times um, in increasingly strident terms, especially with footnotes. And it's kind of a, a real palate cleanser after that because it was it was kind of saying, no, we can write an important novel about um, modern America and racism and the near future and the sort of society that we might find ourselves in if we just carry on on the track we're on without having to <laughs> tell you everything very explicitly all of the time. So strongly recommended. Hard work. 
you know, set yourself some time to do some reading. I've not read Goliath and I have only one opinion about it, therefore, which is, and I don't know if I've ever banged this drum on the pod, but there there will be people in the audience who have heard me whine about this before, which is the title of Goliath is Goliath, colon, a novel. And I'm like, oh, good. I was worried it was a kitchen sink. I do not understand. (laughs) It would be like if Monopoly was called Monopoly, a game. Yes, we know why. It winds me up. Lots of games are called a game. Is it called Goliath a novel? It just said Goliath. Yes. I've just put links to it in the show notes, Alison, and I bristled. Um, Obviously, this is not a comment on the merit of the work in terms of, um, you know, any reasonable metric. This is just a soapbox that I have found and decided to stand on. I think this is just on your butch's lawyers. He probably said, no, it's definitely called Goliath. You cannot call it anything else. The The biblical story of Goliath is critical to the to the reading that you'll have of this. And the lawyers will have said, but no, we need to separate it from all the other Goliaths out there. Um, how about if we call it David and Goliath? He was like, no, no, no. Or, or Goliath, a story of the far future. And uh, that'll be where they ended up. No, no, it's it's the same as, um, so like if you look on hive.co.uk and you type in a novel, there are so many books that have the subtitle a novel, like Dan Moran's first book has the subtitle a novel, and there's definitely nothing else called Caledonian Gambit. It's just, it's a publisher thing. I can't imagine the author caring, but yeah, it drives me up the wall. Anyway. Publisher affectation. Yes. But I'm glad you liked it. Can I also complain then oh yes liz you can complain i haven't read goliath and i really want to read goliath i'm just waiting for kind of the right time to read it which probably would have been when i could nominate for awards but too late um but what i was no i was going to complain about a completely different thing which is i did try for a while having a policy of i'm not buying anything which has got an incredibly long-winded subtitle on amazon to make it pop up in searches like I'm never buying a TikTok made me buy it or the most emotional romance of 2023 from the Sunday Times bestselling author or, you know, TikTok made me buy it, the addictive and darkly romantic fantasy. But I had to give up because there were actually books I wanted to read, which were all in this, the bestseller you have seen on TikTok. But it just annoys me. Just give me the name of the book. One other thing I remembered I did want to say about it is that it reminds me a lot of quite a lot of SF from the 70s which was experimental and literary in just this way. Ballard, Priest, those sorts of people. Oh, no, I think you're mistaken. Priest doesn't write science fiction, he just writes words. Yes, well, he wrote a set of words called Fugue for a Darkening Island, in which the story then gets chopped up and reordered before you read it. And (laughs) Goliath isn't as hard to read as that. I thought, I always used to think Chris Priest was being very cantankerous about these things. And then I had an argument in the pub and I'm full on Chris Priest's side now. Genres are a lie. Yes. So so there are a lot of people going, is this book science fiction? And I mean, obviously it's science fiction, but people read it as not science fiction because it's kind of a, a work of the near future. And so somehow that's speculative fiction and therefore literary and not science fiction at all. It's obviously science fiction, guys. Well, 100%. Why not? So you have to... You have to bear in mind that it's speculative fiction. I mean, as opposed to all of the fiction which doesn't speculate, which we call non-fiction. A novel. <laughs> um, well, welcome to John is Apparently Grumpy. You do have a bit of a cop on you today, actually. I thought I was quite cheerful and happy, but maybe not. 
but we've destroyed it. Liz, do you want to talk about a book which, as far as I can tell, does not have the subtitle a novel? So it does not have the subtitle novel, but it did have an intriguing subtitle on Amazon last time I looked, which I will get into. So my pick of a book is Titanium Noir by Nick Harkaway. It is a detective novel. So it is a noir novel about a a detective named Cal Sounder who gets called in to work on particularly sensitive cases. And he gets called into a murder scene. And what is interesting about this murder scene is that the victim is extremely tall. And so what is going on here is that you have the titans of the title and there is an incredibly expensive gene therapy that only the super elite can have, which, you know, resets your aging process and, and heals you, but also makes you taller. And and so you have essentially this like literal race of supermen and women who have taken this anti-aging technology and come out slightly taller and these are the titans and of course it's all about the super rich boss who invented it and has taken the the titan uh treatment multiple times and become this kind of giant godlike man a man rich enough that he is essentially alone to himself becoming like your you know noir mob boss or whatever and the reason that cal investigates these murders is that his ex-girlfriend is the daughter of you know the boss of this massive empire but why i liked it is because it's it's a really good noir novel it is kind of sparky and fun and has good dialogue and people bouncing off each other and the detective goes to a bar to investigate and talks to the bouncers and it just feels fun to read it's well paced it's got an interesting mystery i think that unravels very nicely and I just think he's got a very good hook on the like noir feeling of it. And then as this science fictional thing on top, if I was going to criticize it, I would say it's, it's a little bit literal. Like there are literally these people who are essentially the 1%, the super rich, and they have now become literally healthier and younger and taller than us. And that is a quite on the nose, not even metaphor, is it? That's quite on the nose. And I don't think it does a huge amount with it, but it is kind of sets up this fun you know, society of haves and have-nots, which is very much like our own, except with this added added twist. So yeah, I enjoyed it. And what I was going to not quite complain about is that if you look it up on Amazon, it now says Titanium Noir brackets Cal Sounder series, which means maybe there'll be a sequel. Then we can nominate it for Best Series. <laughs> Hooray! Other Hugo Awards are available. Spoiler, did you, when you were doing your Hugo reading, guys, read Ogres by Adrian Tchaikovsky? Yes. No, ran out of time. It was very, very, very good. I mean, I thought it was pretty good, and um, and I don't want to spoil our discussion too much. And Espana was very annoyed by the by one of the decisions he made in terms of the language of the book, and then she was um, one of the things that really made her love it was that at the end it's justified in a way that she found very satisfying. I think I've been yeah, I'd be interested to see what you think of it, Liz. Is it about really big people? Maybe. It's about ogres. It's about ogres. Oh, yeah. No, I know what the language thing that you're complaining about is now. Yes. Because I've remembered. Oh, yeah. No, that's something that always really irritates me. And I thought Tchaikovsky actually managed to pull it off. And I, that was amazing. Look, I might get to it, but I've got 2023 reading to be done. So I can make you all read my favourite books before Hugo nomination time. Okay, so I'm busy. Oh, there are too many books. Oh, there are too many books now. There's another Tchaikovsky soon. Come on. Oh, God, the man works very hard. 
I've got the track off to go on my birthday list, obviously, because I'm not an idiot. Oh, happy birthday, Dave, by the way. We're recording this on your birthday. 40 today. Crazy. But I am in the last bit of the year after the Hugo Award deadline, and we know what that means. It means it's time for John to read all the Star Wars and Arkham Horror tie-in novels that he didn't get to in the rest of the year. Because I've read all of the good books that people are like, you have to read this one, and now I can just read straight nonsense that's very fun. I'm going to pick The Wicker Man, which is a movie. Not the Nicolas Cage one, the 1973 one starring Edward Woodward, Britt Eklund, and Christopher Lee. 50th anniversary, right? It is indeed the 50th anniversary. We went to see it as part of the uh, Whitley Bay Film Festival, and we went to see it in a village hall in a place called Earsden. Uh, it was great. Um, slight spoilers for The Wicker Man will appear as part of me telling this story. So, like, but I don't think there's anything you wouldn't also have worked out from, you know, the poster or its role in modern culture. So, you know, really good, really, really good. Uh, really enjoyed it. Really liked the way that it plays with the audience expectation in the same way it plays with the main character's expectation to like build a sense of unease. Um, you understand what the main character is going through because you are also kind of like confused about what is happening and what i mean by that is there is a lot of nudity in this movie like a lot and i was a bit like oh i knew it was the 70s but blimey see 1973 so the main character is kind of a christian fundamentalist which is really interesting um because the other thing you kind of have this like tension between his reaction to what's going on which is objectively very weird and very creepy but also the fact that like his reaction to what is going on is in some ways basically religious intolerance so that's kind of an interesting dynamic but most interesting is that the bit at the end where they burn him in the wicker man they lit the village hall windows to make them look like they were on fire and it was amazing it was so good <laughs> highly enjoyed it uh i thought it was a really good film uh, so yeah, I'm glad that I watched it. Uh, and it is homework for something I will inevitably pick on a future episode. Um, so yeah. Shall we wrap up? And that was the Odd Thought Podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Now it's time for Octothorpe Gaming Corner. Have you played any games recently, John? I went cottaging. Why? Yeah, I played some games and it was just so many games. Um, But I played Moon, which is very good. It's about the moon. And have either of you played Villagers? You say Villages or Villagers or Village? Villagers. I think no. No, I don't think so. I mean, it wasn't a trick question. Like, um, so yeah, so Villagers is like a, a kind of drafting engine buildy kind of game. And the same person who did that then did a game called Streets and has now done a game called Moon. And they're in a sort of loose trilogy because obviously if you extrapolate, if you draw a line between Villages and Streets and then you extrapolate that, the next step is Moon. I think we can all agree. So he's made a game about the moon but it's very good it's very very good it's kind of very it's like an engine builder tableau builder kind of game and it's just really nice and it comes with loads of adorable little rovers and it comes in a lovely box and it was pretty great 
I also played a game that I loved that Nick and Neil have, but last time I was at their house, I was like, this is in shrink wrap. We could play this. And Neil was like, I don't think I want to play that. Uh, but it turns out it's really good. It's called Insider, and it's 20 questions, but one of you knows what the answer is. To obviously, obviously, the person answering the questions knows what the answer is, but then another person who is ostensibly asking questions also knows what the answer is, and they have to try and get the group to the answer without making it too obvious that they already know what it is. And that was real good. We played that quite a lot. And we also played a game called Cheering Machine, which was fine. I have played Turing Machine quite a lot online. Um, I I thought that it was a bit. It felt like a bit like work, really. It it didn't scratch my puzzling itch anything like as much as people online seem to think it does for them. Um, and I'd rather just be playing one of my little roguelikes or something that does the same sort of thing, but in a <laughs> in a in a less board game way. Yeah, I was really excited about Turing Machine, and then I don't think I like it as much as Cryptid or Search for Planet X. Like, so it's a it's a kind of logical deduction game, um, but it's very solo. Like, there's vanishingly little player interaction, and yeah, I don't know. I I just feel like having played it, I'm not sure I really want to play it again, um, which is a bit of a problem. So the idea is you play it a few times, and then you start making it harder. Um, and the more harder you make it, the better it gets, people say. But I, I didn't, I found it a bit kind of head crunchy. And, and obviously, you then, you then might need to handicap it for different people. It might be one of those games like set where, where the same person will win every single time unless you're careful. We played like the first two introductory games in the rule book, and then I was like, well, this all seems fine. Let's just do the daily challenge. And I did the daily challenge and I solved it in the same number of steps as I solved the second puzzle out of the rule book. So I'm like, it might be that the daily challenge was just quite easy that day, but I have a worry that, yeah, I don't know. I'm just not sure if it ramps up the difficulty enough to keep my interest. But I might just have gotten lucky with the challenge I played. I don't know. It's a shame because it looked really cool. You know, Marianne and I played it because it takes no time to play online. Marianne and play, I played it about nine times in an evening. Um, so that's the other thing is that it's, it's part of what people like about it is, um, is the kind of physical box design, which game design, which means that it solves the things using punch cards, um, which is kind of very retro and, and charming. Yeah. I do know how that trick works because it's, it's like binary chop. Um, I played a game called Hadrian's Wall which I've been wanting to play for the longest time. Um, and it's suddenly turned up on Board Game Arena, so we played it the other day. Um, it is it's like the world's biggest, most complicated roll and write. But that is also extremely solo. So honestly, the only interaction between people really is that you compare scores at the end of the game. You know, you're, you're, you're Romans, you're building Hadrian's Wall, you're, you're doing other things. You have a lot of things to. It's it's really interesting because it generates a very lot of interesting game choices from almost no randomness. So there's just like you draw a couple of cards at the beginning of each round. There are six rounds, and apart from that, there's there's nothing random happening at all. <laughs> um, and yet there's there's scope for a lot of. So people do like it a lot. Nice, Liz. Have you played any board games? No. Oh, and that was the first board game I had played for two months, John two months yeah because you were but you yeah i went on my taf trip i saw my first board game cafe in toronto because that was when they were still like a new 
quite whimsical idea. Okay, we'll let Liz go to sleep now. Or, you know, stay up all night partying. Liz is looking pretty tired. I'm playing a game. <laughs> <laughs> what game are you playing? What, right now? I'm I'm playing this game that Abigail linked in Discord, this The Root Trees Are Dead-like deduction game. It's basically Revenge of the Obra Din, but a bit simpler and in your browser. And it's got tricky. Please put a link. Yes. And that was how Alison got no more done today. Yeah, I really got sucked into it. So if I got sucked into it, I'm a bit worried for Alison. I, Obra Din, I played for three hours and then stopped playing and have never picked up again. But I probably will pick it up again at some point. Oh, really? Remember, I like, I prefer non-narrative games. Big butts and I cannot lie. Oh, is Obergin narrative? Obergin's a narrative game. I mean, it's a st- you know you're working. It's a puzzle game, but you're working, you're working a thing out. Oh. I mean, I liked it well enough, and I <laughs> I shouldn't have stopped it. I just you know I had somewhere to be. I should just carried on playing until it was done. So this is very similar, but there's like less plot, so you might like it. Um, did you also see that there's a a YouTube Sudoku solving um, channel? who decided to do a playthrough of Revenge of the Obra Dinn. Well, it's probably Cracking the Cryptic, isn't it? Probably. Cracking the Cryptic's the um, the, the kind of ten-ton gorilla of um, Sudoku channels. And they did Barbara's You. And I think they did a bit of The Witness as well. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.